As we head into the final days of this presidential race, consider this story. Matt Futterman was running for student government in Mamaroneck High School in New York in 1985. And he ran a campaign that changed electoral politics in the school, at least for a while. Here's the way the race lined up. My opponent was a guy named Dave Levy, who was a year older than I, who was going to be a senior, and he was running for this position. So you had to figure he was going to win that class, I was going to win my class, and then it was up to the freshmen who were going to decide the election. And it was not looking good for Matt with those key swing voters, the tough-to-please freshmen. And they came to the final days before the election, just as we are now with this presidential race. And Matt turned to his best friend's brother, Bennett, for advice. And Bennett came up with this campaign slogan that turned the race around. Here's Bennett. Vote for Matt. He is good. He'll give you wood. Right. Essentially, Matt would walk around Bomaranek Public High School with uh, an armful of various types of wood, twigs and sticks and lumber and such. And anybody who wanted wood would get a free sample of wood. Then Bennett had another idea. They could make a TV commercial. That's right, a TV commercial. Nobody had ever done a political TV ad in a high school race. Their school, anyway. The school had TVs in every room. The school's morning announcements were done on these television monitors. They could play their ad during the morning announcements. The next day, I met Bennett at the beginning of lunch, and we went to the video room, and he signed out the, the cameras and tripod, and we went out back to the parking lot, and he, he had, I think he had brought some logs um, for me to hold. And uh, it, the whole thing took about 15 minutes to film. I'm standing there with wood, the, the, the shot opens, I'm there, I say, you know, hi, I'm Matt Futterman, I'm running for corresponding secretary of the executive board. I think maybe Matt said, vote for me, I am good, I'll give you wood. Bennett has his arm around me, he's got a microphone in his hand, he pulls it back to his mouth, he looks very seriously into the camera, and he says... I said, what do you mean, you're going to give, give it away for free? He says, that's right, Bennett, for absolutely for free. You want birch, I got birch. You want oak, I got oak. You want pine, you want twigs. Oak, beech, maple, r- magnolia, linden. You want sticks, you want two-by-fours. I got it for you. And Bennett looks very seriously into the camera and holds up a log and says, Redwood. Let me just ask you to describe, just choose one word and describe, okay, this, this ad airs for the first time during the morning announcements. Mm-hmm. Describe in one word the reaction from the school. It would have to be fanaticism. You know, and like pigeons to the bread bearer. He was just swarmed upon by, you know, students from every grade wanting a piece of wood. People were coming up for seconds, for thirds. I mean, it was just like a Hail Mary touchdown. And before I know it, I'm looking down in the bag, and I'm very quickly running out of wood. And I'm thinking, I got to get I got to get some more wood. It, it got to the point where he was giving away so much wood, where there was such a demand to give away the wood, that he had to stop giving it away to seniors because they didn't have the right to vote in school-wide elections. <laughs> Did you have to modify the ad, like with a little, at the end, you know, <laughs> seniors not a pot? <laughs> I think, I believe the ad played one time. 
One time was enough, though. Come election day, Matt easily swept into office. And the next year, because of Matt's commercial, the age of televised politics hit Mamaroneck High full force. Nearly all the candidates had TV ads. And interestingly, nearly all of them were dreadfully dull. They went on TV and they droned on about their qualifications and what they wanted to do for the school. It's as if they missed what it was that made Matt's ad so effective. Here's Bennett. It appealed directly to what was most important to the students. And what was most important was not how the traditionally defined offices and duties of an elected official. People did not care about the prom and about, you know, the track team's uniforms. What they cared about was being represented. And this sense of absurdity... uh, The sense of absurdity in the ad. the, The sense of absurdity that Matt was willing to express in the ads does represent who they were. Which brings us to the current election. While it's true that we want candidates with whom we agree, more or less, on at least some of the so-called issues, I think we also want, or I want anyway, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this, some moment of spontaneity, of human joy, some I'll-give-you-wood moment. It would make me feel like I could trust these guys. The candidates know this, too. At this point in the evolution of focus-grouped, poll-driven politics, they have absolutely learned that what we want is some moment that is not focus-grouped and poll-driven. So, they go on to David Letterman, they go on to Jay Leno, they tell their little jokes, they try to charm, all to try to get outside the sound bites. Outside the sound bites. Today on our program, driven by the same desperate impulse, we also try to escape the world of the soundbite. We have three different stories about parts of this election that do not fit into the scripted, pre-planned soundbites that we'll be hearing from the candidates over the next few days. Act one, fools rush in where soundbites fear to tread. Jack Hitt reports on a multimillionaire who helped swing this winter's Michigan primary by trashing mainstream polls in a very unfocused grouped way. And what he has planned for these next few days before the general election. Act two. Take out your number two pencil, in which we look at the issue behind the issue behind a soundbite. And if that's confusing, well, just stay with me. Act three. Nepotism, a beginner's guide, and a defense. Adam Davidson discovers that he has the same blue blood ancestors as George W. Bush and wonders where his family went wrong and where the Bushes went right and why it takes 220 years to get to the point where you get to say the soundbite. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass, and remember, for the next hour, I will fight for you. So stay with me. Act one. Fools rush in. So in these days when we yearn for more of our politicians to shoot from the hip a little more than they do, Jack Hitt found somebody who fit the bill, a former gubernatorial candidate in Michigan. Jack tells the story. Last February, I was sitting in the office of the multimillionaire Michigan trial lawyer, Jeffrey Figer. You'll remember, he was Jack of Vorkin's lawyer. And he was also the lawyer who once walked into court carrying a big picture of the prosecutor, his opponent, with a clown nose pinned on. I was trying to figure out how Figer wins hundreds of millions of dollars while using tactics most people find outrageous, even insane. But I could barely get in a question, 
because it was just a few days away from the Michigan Republican primary, and Figer was incensed George W. Bush might win. Remember how it was last winter. Bush had just barely defeated John McCain in the South Carolina primary, and Michigan's governor, John Engler, had declared his state to be Bush's, quote, firewall against McCain. On that cold afternoon, Figer's phone rang every two minutes. It was a couple of his pals who were encouraging Figer to make some negative ads attacking Bush in order to humiliate Governor Engler. Less than 24 hours later, Michigan voters began hearing Figer's ad. Hi, this is Jeff Figer. They're back. Listen to this. George W. Bush's record of results speaks for itself. As governor, he demanded higher standards for schools. Fought trial lawyers over lawsuit abuse and beat them. What? When they say they ended lawsuit abuse, they mean we got screwed. The ad is a whole minute of in-your-face vitriol, right up to the sign-off. Paid for by citizens against dumb and dumber. Here's the catch. It worked. At least George Bush thought it did. The day he lost Michigan, he was blaming Figer, by name, for interfering in the Republican primary. Months later, with Michigan heading towards another incredibly close presidential contest, Figer and his buddies decided to do it all over again, just one week before Election Day. I hopped a plane and met with Figer's pals, the guys who helped write these ads, Eric Humphrey, a radio producer, and Leon Weiss, a lawyer. I wanted to know, were they a PAC, a special interest group? What were they? The best description of us would be jello. Uh, you can see it, but you just can't get your hands on it. It's like uh, we're a loose-knit group of people who uh, have some strong political beliefs. We do not represent the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party, or any other organization. I'd, I'd say that we're probably coffee outside of the cup. You just don't know what to do with us. And they are coffee outside the cup. In this age of focus groups and marketing demographics and niches like suburban males, 18 to 24 years old, their idea of a target audience sounds totally antique. Somebody who, uh, you know, still has an open mind and maybe has a sense of humor. They only do radio ads, in part because they're so effective in a state obsessed with cars and driving and also because it's cheaper than one might think to get into the political game. On these ads, they might spend $20,000. Yeah, it's like a grain of sand uh, on the beach. Absolutely. You know, 10 or 15 or maybe $20,000 as opposed to, what, 40, 50 million dollars that they spent on television, especially in the last two months. So it's, it's, it's nothing. It's a mosquito on an elephant's hind quarter. What do you think about the ads that the two candidates are running these days? Well, what, what are the ads like here in Michigan? They are totally ridiculous. It is sickening. And boring. And boring. I want to literally throw my television set out of the window. You've got negative ads against George Bush from Al Gore. You've got George Bush with negative ads against Al Gore. And then you've got Al Gore and George Bush both sitting in classrooms hugging little black children. I mean, come on, knock it off. Tell us something. By late afternoon, 
we had adjourned to the offices of WJR Radio in Detroit to work further on the scripts when there was a commotion. Figer swept into the studio like a conquering hero, dressed in an expensive blue pinstripe suit and muted red tie. He looked like Bush or Gore during the first debate, except for his hair, shaggy 70s retro. He was obviously still high from the euphoria one must experience from asking a jury for $150 million and knowing you might get it. Once Feiger took his seat in front of the studio microphone, Eric and Leon became noticeably more subdued. A typical moment. Eric had come up with a new line for Feiger. Well, let's do that. Write that out. Okay. You could write that out right now. I like that. I am. But you got to have a lot more than just that. That's about 10 seconds. Okay. Go. Talk about Go. Al. Okay. I gave you one pen. I gave him the other one. Here's your pen back. No, you can't have my pen back. Ah, the creative process. So Figer took his pen back. Just a minute. I thought by coming to WJR, what I would witness was the contemporary making of a Willie Horton ad, the most famous attack ad in contemporary politics not officially sanctioned by either party, and so able to put out a distorted racist message about Michael Dukakis in 1988. But all day long, I was amazed to witness an unusual integrity on display. Figer and his pals wanted to ridicule Bush viciously, but they were sort of prissy about it, surprisingly concerned that everything in the ad be true. When Leon wanted a line saying, Texas leads the country in water pollution, Eric struck it, arguing that Texas was only 49th. Again, here's Figer. The general political ads that are out there are horrible. Horrible. Just absolutely horrible. They're an insult to my intelligence because they're, they're lies, generally lies. I mean, just out and out, complete lies. I mean, our ads, frankly, are, 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 are impeccably researched and empirically correct. There was a kind of internal logic, even to the boundaries of their own bad taste. A Monica Lewinsky ad? No. A bunch of bad Jewish jokes about how Lieberman would save the country money by buying wholesale? Next. At one point, Jeffrey started scribbling madly on a yellow legal pad, and then told everyone to hush. He said he'd had a divine inspiration, and wanted to try out a new ad concept. Hi, this is Jesus Christ, and I'm a little pissed. I said thou shall not kill. What don't you understand about that? For example, George W. Bush. He's got a death toll higher than Slobodan Milosevic. <laughs> and you guys want to make him the most powerful man in the world? Are, are you nuts? <laughs> Vote for Bush and piss off the Lord. <laughs> oh, cut it out! <laughs> cut it out! Piss off the Lord. <laughs> what was amazing about the whole experience was how much fun they were all having. It's hard to capture the madness and pleasure that filled the room. Obviously, it was mean-spirited, but it's a pleasure you almost never see in our formal public politics. I, I don't think anyone has fun. That's, that's I, I mean, but everything that we do, I, at least me, I can't speak for everybody else, it's only interesting for me if I have fun. Now, for some reason, the idea of fun in this whole thing is, is either not accepted or rejected or looked down upon. I don't know why, but I'll tell you that that's the way I feel about everything that I do. I mean, life is so short. I just looked around and I was, uh, you know, 18 years old and I'm 49 going on 50. Man, that's so fast. If you don't have fun, what else? What's your excuse for being? 
Isn't this the kind of unscripted spirit most of us say is missing from our mainstream politicians? While it's easy to do this from the sidelines, the question is, can you have this much fun if you're the candidate and then go on to win? In fact, Feiger ran for governor in 1998 and lost. He lost in large part because his opponent reminded voters that Feiger regularly said shocking things, like the time he referred to Jesus as, quote, just some goofball that got nailed to the cross. If you ask Feiger about it, he'll tell you it's taken out of context. But I've read the full quote, and it's pretty bad. He says believing in Jesus is just as silly as Elvis mania. People had a reason to be insulted, and that's the problem with shoot-from-the-hip politics. And yet maybe the whole experience made him a little more careful. Over the course of two hours, he calls every soul who passes the glass window into the studio. Go bring that girl in here, and I want to see what she thinks about it. I don't know where she is. Just go ask. They'll tell her. They'll get her. And to everyone, he plays his, Hi, this is Jesus Christ ad. Hi, this is Jesus Christ, and I'm a little pissed. Every time, it cracks everybody up. And every time, Leon and Eric try to talk him out of it. Are you crazy? <laughs> Rejected. 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 Right now, you got the Jews, the blacks, and the Catholics all over your ass. And this is the one time I watched them oppose Figer on a big issue and actually convince him. After two and a half hours, they finished two 60-second ads, complete with sound effects and music. We're like the Beatles, Figer says. Here's one of the ads. Hi, this is Jeff Figer. George W. Bush has never accomplished anything on his own in his entire life. Let's take a look. You don't have the qualifications for Yale, my boy. My dad is George Bush. Welcome to Yale, my boy. You don't have the qualifications for Harvard Business School. My dad is George Bush. His ads sound highly produced and planned out, yet the whole process was so improvisational, and Figer himself is completely unreflective, to the point that when I kept asking him to talk about the strategy of the ad, he got a little mad at me. We don't give a damn. <laughs> we just do it. And, and who, in your mind, who, who's, whose vote do you think you're swaying? I don't know. I'm telling you. If it's or how possible. do you think this reacts on somebody who hears it? I don't know. You're, yeah. you're asking me to analyze this yeah. in terms of, uh, and, and then be absolutely serious and intellectually, uh, you know, delve into the, the, <laughs> the thing. And, and I'm not going to, I don't do that. I mean, it, it would ruin the spontaneity. And let me just tell you this, okay? That's why it's so good. The political ads that Figer makes are the ones we voters allegedly find the most horrifying. Unaccountable attacks, not affiliated with any candidate, saying the worst possible things. And I wondered if the populist part of Figer might think there's something wrong with the idea that any rich guy can get on the air and take pot shots at any politician he wants. But I was wrong. Figer thinks there should be more of these ads, that everyone should get in on the game. And when he told me this, I realize that what Figer's up to isn't part of the new wave of negative advertising, but actually is connected to something very old-fashioned in American politics, the pure public glee of calling the other side names. This is the way it always was. In 1884, the fact that Grover Cleveland had had a child out of wedlock had Republicans marching down the street delightedly singing, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? And Democrats would shout back, Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I mean, it does seem like y'all are having a lot of fun. Yeah. In there. We do anything we do. It's got to be so fun. Good. If it's not fun, we wouldn't do it. Do you think they're having fun over at the Gore campaign mm -hmm. tonight? No. 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 They're talking about prescription drug plans. 
and Social Security, and fifteen hundred dollars, and thirty thousand dollars, and twenty thousand dollars. We had a fun. We just had fun. We did fun. It's fun. That's what it is. How many people have you heard just today say, "I can't wait until this damn election is over"? Everybody hates it. There is no joy in our politics. No pleasure. No one's laughing, except it seems Jeffrey Figer, who's having a ball, and now signs all of his ads with his trademark bellowing laugh. Paid for by the committee against dumb, dumber, and dumbest. <laughs> Jack Hitt lives in Connecticut. Coming up, how many grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents do you have to have with the middle names Herbert and Walker for you to become president yourself? You ain't seen nothing yet. In a minute, for Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Today in our program, outside the sound bites in which we try to avoid, sidestep, or look beneath the presidential candidate's talking points in these final days before the election, we arrived at Act 2 of our show. Take out your number two pencil. One thing that is striking about this presidential race is that the two big issues that the two big candidates debate most are two things that most of us do not really understand at all. Prescription drug policy and school accountability. And so the candidates throw the little catchwords back and forth. And how are we supposed to evaluate that? It is as if we're supposed to choose between them based on their stances on Fermat's last theorem. So our producer, Alex Bloomberg, looked behind what they have to say about education and found that the reality is dismayingly different from the little speeches. There are differences, fairly big ones, between the Bush and Gore education plans. Gore wants more money for early childhood education and teacher training. Bush wants vouchers for families and failing schools. But at the heart of both their education plans is the idea that kids should be tested and tested often to be sure they're being taught well. Look, we agree on a couple of things uh, on education. Uh, I strongly support new accountability. So does Governor Bush. Uh, I'm in favor of testing as a way of measuring performance. Every school, every school district, have every state test the the children. I've also uh, proposed... We're going to say, if you receive federal money, measure third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and show us whether or not children are learning to read and write and add and subtract, and if so, there'll be a bonus plan. And instead of continuing to subsidize failure, testing is the cornerstone of reform. You know how I know? 
In the first presidential debate, the only argument about tests was who had more of them and whose were tougher on kids and teachers. Well, first of all, I do have mandatory testing. I think the governor may not have, uh, have heard what I, I said clearly. All schools, all school districts, uh, students themselves, and required teacher testing, which goes a step farther than Governor Bush has been willing to go. North Carolina is one of a handful of states in the country that's already adopted an education plan similar to what both candidates are talking about. It's called the ABC program, and it's based on the same simple premise both candidates propose. We hold schools accountable for teaching our kids. The schools that do well, we reward. The ones that don't, we demand changes. And the way we tell, a standardized test. I talked to teachers from five schools across the state, and what they said is the reality isn't as simple as the campaign rhetoric makes it seem and that North Carolina's accountability program has consequences, both good and bad, that interestingly neither candidate seems to mention. So how many tests have you taken this, this year? About four. The computer competency test, the end-of-quarter test, the reading end-of-quarter test, and um, it was a practice computer competency test. And, and, what, and what's the date today? October 18th. Kids in North Carolina take a lot of tests. In some schools, as many as 30 days out of the year are given over to tests. And the most important tests of all, the tests everyone talks about, the tests from which all other tests originate, are called the EOGs, or end-of-grade tests. Every kid from third grade to eighth grade takes them. Nearly all the teachers I talked to said that lots has improved since North Carolina started its educational reforms in 1996. There's a new curriculum, which the teachers like, teacher salaries have increased, and more resources are going to early childhood programs. But when talking about the EOGs, a lot of the teachers use words like frenzy, mania, or in some cases, monster. That's because a lot is riding on the EOGs. School scores are published in local papers and on the internet. They show up in real estate listings. Principals of chronically low-performing schools can be fired. Teachers at schools that score well on the tests or show market improvement receive bonuses that go as high as $1,500 per teacher. But teachers have enough questions about the testing that some of them have turned down the money when it's offered. And in North Carolina's fifth year of reform, the issues have heated up enough that many educators get edgy talking about it publicly. One state official hung up on me in the middle of a conversation. At a school in Hallsboro, the principal, Lynn Spaulding, wouldn't let me talk to any of his teachers without him being present. And then there's Teresa Glenn. My name is Teresa Glenn. I teach eighth grade language arts and social studies, and I've been teaching for three and a half years. And where do you teach? I teach in Montgomery County, North Carolina, which is in the south central part of North Carolina. All right. And are you in school right now? No, I'm not in school. And, and why is that? Uh, I'm serving a suspension for discussing the North Carolina end of grade tests. On May 28th of this year, Teresa Glenn posted an impassioned email message to a North Carolina educational listserv hosted by the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. In nine paragraphs, she outlined her various concerns with the EOGs. In the last one, she summarized. And uh, the last paragraph, I talked about some of the things I saw last year with my students. Um, mm -hmm. And I said, I apologize if anyone is offended by any of the above. I'm personally offended by the EOG tests. I've seen students, good, solid AB students, crying because of the tests. I've seen students who work hard but lack the native intelligence to pass a two-hour multiple-choice test retained. I've seen teachers do nothing for the last six to ten weeks of school but work on EOG preparation. I've seen teachers publicly humiliated because they had lower test scores than the year before. 
I've seen children made fun of, called names, and put down based on their EOG scores. I've seen teachers look down at their noses because a child is a 3-3 on the EOG test and not a 3-4. The entire spectacle is disgusting. The part of the email that got her in trouble was the part where she discussed the specific content of two questions on last year's reading EOG. She pointed out that the two questions required students to know information that wasn't in the reading passage they were supposedly being tested on. Not long after that email, her principal called her into his office and told her the state was considering revoking her teaching certificate. You know, to be perfectly honest with you, I was absolutely floored. And, you know, my principal called me, and I, and I really like my principal. I think he's a very upstanding man. He called me into his office and said, you know, did you say something on an email form about the test this year? And I said, of course I did. You know, there was not, it didn't occur to me that, um, and maybe I'm just naive, but it didn't occur to me that you can get in trouble for, you know, discussing the shortcomings of these tests, particularly when they, you know, are almost life and death, at least academically, for students. So I was very surprised. They eventually told Teresa that she'd violated an agreement she'd signed as part of the testing program that forbade her from paraphrasing any of the questions on the test in public. Teresa says the only reason she was allowed to keep her job and got away with just a suspension was that one of the local school board members present at her hearing owed her a favor. She says the big problem with the tests is how much time and resources have been diverted to them. Some teachers in her school, she says, spend 50 to 75 percent of their classroom time on test prep. A huge chunk of the school's book budget has gone to buying four different test prep books for each student. She says no wonder administrators are so touchy. You know, the amount of money that's been poured into this is immense. If somebody says, this is not working, and you've just wasted, you know, $500 million on this program that, that's, that's actually hurting kids, you have to think that there's going to be some kind of serious ramification for that person. And you think that's what's happening, that $500 million has been poured into a program that's hurting kids? Well, I just, I just got something yesterday in the mail about um, from the Department of Public Instruction sort of bragging that um, so somewhere over $100 million have been handed out in bonuses this year alone to teachers who were at these you know, schools that have made the biggest gains. What do you make of that? Um, well, on the personal level, it depresses me because I've been asking still for the same two novel sets for the last two years, and I haven't gotten them. Um, are you serious? <laughs> yes. What are you trying to get? I just want I want Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, who actually lives here in North Carolina. Um, I just want 30 copies of it. And then I want, um, there's another novel that I'd like, the John Krakauer Into Thin Air, uh-huh, a book about the climb to Mount Everest. The kids would love that. They would be totally into because it's gory enough that they'd be interested in it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's that's all I want in my pitiful life as an eighth grade teacher. And I don't foresee myself getting it. And I know we talk about high standards, but in my mind, you know, just teaching students to answer multiple choice questions is about the lowest standard I can possibly imagine. That's not the same thing as having the skills to live a productive life in a democratic society. I think we're robbing the students of what education should be, which is a love of knowledge and, and the ability to pursue gaining more knowledge as you, as you want to. And we're saying that the purpose of education is to pass these tests. When I asked the North Carolina State Board of Education for a school where their plan was working, 
they sent me to Allenbrook Elementary in Charlotte. It's in a poor neighborhood and has a history of poor performance on the tests. Four years ago, the state assistance team came to Allenbrook to help it improve, the kind of thing Al Gore would like to see adopted everywhere. If it's a failing school, shut it down and reopen it under a new principal with a turnaround team of specialists the way Governor Jim Hunt does in North Carolina. If it's a fa- Actually, they don't shut the school down. But there was a team of specialists, and 70% of the staff either quit or was transferred, and the principal was removed. Kathy Hammond was his replacement, and under her leadership, the school has made remarkable gains on the test scores. And she readily credits the accountability program. I think our state is doing a phenomenal job of addressing the needs in education. When I taught, and I taught for 16 years in a middle school, I never had an administrator ask me, why are you teaching that? What is it you want your children to know that they didn't know before you started? No one cared. As long as the children were in the room, everyone was quiet, the parents were happy, I could have been teaching leapfrog. So, you know, I I like the idea that we have a, a set of standards that all children need to know and that we're responsible for teaching them. Here's what they found when they tried to fix the school. First, the problem wasn't the teacher's ability. The state team evaluated all the teachers, and only one was rated below competent. The problem was there simply weren't enough of them, especially for the task of bringing Allenbrook's student population up to grade level. For whatever sociological reasons, kids from poor neighborhoods tend to do worse in school and worse on standardized tests. You can bring them up to speed, but you need extra teachers to do it. If you have a child that's coming to you that's coming out of an environment where they've not had a bed to sleep in, uh, they've lost their parent for whatever reason, to incarceration or anything else, what do we as a school do about it in order to put support in for that child and that family? Um, you cannot do that without adequate staff. You can't do that in a classroom with 25 children and one teacher. Which raises the question, did the state need a test to fix Allenbrook School? Principal Hammond says what actually improved things was extra money, which she used to hire more reading teachers and a full-time social worker and a school psychologist. Why bother with a test? Why not just supply that? We know enough about how children learn and how children are successful to fix every school in America comes down to the question, are we willing, do we have the will to do it, and are we willing to put the resources in the places that need them? I am not opposed to accountability. I think accountability is a great thing. Um, I think sometimes we get carried away with the way we measure accountability, because it's, it's more complex than a score on a test. If what comes out of the national debate, say, is that um, the only thing that we need to make our schools better is, you know, is a tough national test for everybody. It scares me. It frustrates me that people think it's a simple fix, that we, we don't spend more time talking about what does work. And one of the reasons we don't want to talk about what does work is because it takes a different level of commitment It takes a different level of resources, and it takes a different kind of dialogue than a statement like, I'm going to fix all of the schools in America. She is maybe unintentionally uh, proving our point that the ABC, if it had not been for the ABC program and and Alan Brooke being embarrassed by being on the front page of the Charlotte Observer, the local community would have never put those additional resources in. 
This is Phil Kirk, chairman of the North Carolina State Board of Education and one of the two guys in charge of the ABC program. Alan Brooke would not have ever gotten those additional resources if the ABC program hadn't embarrassed the school board. So she's made our point uh, better than I could have. Phil Kirk says that he agrees with Principal Hammond, that it's harder to teach kids from poor backgrounds. You need more resources, more staff. He says he's gotten those things for poor schools, and he's trying to get even more. But the political reality is, it's easier to get money from a state legislature if you can show them results. If we didn't have ABCs, we wouldn't be getting additional resources for the low-performing schools. I believe that strongly. The state's investing a lot of money in the schools, and they want teachers to be more accountable. And you know, and we're not going to back off accountability. A lot of teachers complain that politicians and people from the state use the language of business when talking about education. And many people are suspicious of the fact that Kirk is head of both the State Board of Education and the State Chamber of Commerce. In other words, the main education lobby and the main business lobby. But it's entirely possible that the same business vocabulary that raises suspicions among teachers is the very thing that makes him successful at getting money out of the legislature. He puts the concerns of education in language the legislature understands. Still, he can be pretty abrasive. He describes teachers who don't like the tests this way. They want business as usual. Uh, they can come up with every uh, whiny excuse that they want to. But if, if anybody thinks they're, they're whining and complaining is going to uh, cause us to get weak-kneed as we end social promotion and put in an exit exam, they've got another thought coming because it's not going to happen. This is a letter that I received. And it's a report of student performance on the second retest with the North Carolina Integrated Test. Kathy Rouse's youngest son, Carlton, was in third grade last year at Hallsboro Artesia Elementary School. He got A's and B's, but he didn't pass his EOGs at the end of the year, and then he failed his two allowed retests, which meant he had to repeat third grade. I told him that I went to the school and I, what the teacher had told me, that he hadn't passed. And I said, that means that they'll hold you back. And I thought he just, he cried hot tears, and he asked me, uh, Mama, what's wrong with me? And that right there, that was it. You know, it's not, it's more than a reading problem. That, to me, is the beginning of the onslaught on our children's psyche. Kathy protested took her case before the county board, and finally had Carlton promoted. He's in fourth grade this year. Between 1991 and 1997, 66 studies were done on holding kids back. 65 of them showed it to be either ineffectual or damaging in the long run. And a lot of times, it's just not necessary. Even in schools that start aggressive remediation in kindergarten, it's common not to see higher test scores till seventh or eighth grade. Third grade is just too early to tell if things are working. To Kathy Rouse, this is just common sense. No test or anyone, especially anyone considering himself an educator, can indicate what you're going to be when you're eight years old. We do not begin to categorize our children at eight years old and, and let them stamp them and have them believe at eight years old that there's something wrong with them. If I told them, I don't know where I have to go, but I will not have that done to my child. I'll not have him see himself as less successful at eight years old. That's criminal. I mean, there, there are studies and all that on that. You're, how much self-image and self-perception plays into learning. 
Even among teachers who think the tests have made education better in North Carolina, like math teacher Marianne Davis, this is a big worry. Not everyone will pass the test. In the worst schools, over half the kids fail. Even in the very best, it's 10%. What happens to those kids? Perhaps we are just assuming a higher level of competency than, than is possible for all children. What's the danger of that for the kids? The, the danger of that is that we're asking them to be something that they just can't be. Putting a child in a desk with a chair and saying, we're going to test you over and over until you can pass this, until you get it right, is just not always going to happen. That's what I'm saying, to, to expect that every child in the state of North Carolina is going to reach a level three or four so that they can be promoted and so they can graduate is an unrealistic expectation. And having that unrealistic expectation is not fair to the children. We are taking, we're taking it out on the kids when it's not always the kids' fault. Yeah. And, that's, and that's sad. That's really, we shouldn't do that to children. That's abusive. This gets us to the crux of what Governor Bush might call a difference in philosophy, the philosophy of teaching. How much should you demand results from students on the one hand? versus how much you should nurture them on the other. Phil Kirk and the state legislature think things went too far towards nurture and that it's time to go back the other way. A lot of the liberal thinking people are more worried about self-esteem than they are about whether children can read and write. You know, we don't, we don't buy that line. At a school assembly in the Jefferson Elementary School gymnasium, I saw this philosophical divide for the gulf it truly is. Jefferson Elementary is set in a Winston-Salem suburb filled with mature oaks and sprawling split levels. Inside the school's carpeted classrooms, kids sit around work tables, not at desks, and quietly read or write in journals. Their art hangs from the walls, right above the height-appropriate bookshelves, next to the hamster cages and various aquaria. Jefferson Elementary does very well on the EOGs, and today's assembly is because people from the state are here to congratulate them for it. Last year, for the first time, over 90% of Jefferson students scored above average on the EOGs, making it what the state calls a school of excellence. Dr. Brad Sneeden, one of the state administrators, explains what this means. What has to be added to all that powerful leadership, that powerful teaching, that powerful nurturing, that powerful participation by others, what does it take to really get a school to a school of excellence? It takes you, doesn't it? It takes you to decide, I'm here to learn. And you have done that. You're leaders. You are a leader. You're setting the stage. And we want many, many more to follow. Keep in mind, the group of leaders being addressed here is an auditorium full of school children with missing teeth and those gym shoes that light up. They're sitting cross-legged on the floor. The shy ones are leaning against their teachers. Whatever message is reaching them from all this, it's probably not the one the speakers are intending. Witness this failed call-and-response attempt from Dr. Martin, the second presenter. Now, you all heard Dr. Sneeden. You all heard Dr. Sneeden speak about responsibility for doing your work. Remember he said the final ingredient after we have capable administrators, excellent teachers, I believe he used the word powerful teachers, the final ingredient is you guys, right? And so it takes responsibility for you doing your work and learning. Now, where's the third grade? Third grade, why don't you guys stand up because you're going to be taking a test this year for the first time. You'll be a part. 
So all of you are going to do what? Take responsibility. Very good. All right, you guys can have a seat. Then Dr. Moser, Jefferson's principal, took the stage. He's an easy guy to love. He's sweet and soft-spoken, and if anything, a little embarrassed about this assembly. He readily admits that a large part of the reason his students score so well in the EOGs is simply they come from well-off families. And when he addresses the students, he doesn't mention responsibility or leadership. It's all nurturing. You all look so good. And it's always nice to get to look straight at you every day. Boys and girls, you know that we're very proud of you. We're proud of the work you do every day. Teachers, I couldn't be more proud of the relationship and the atmospheres in your classrooms that allow our children to come every day and have a good experience here at school. You do a great job taking care of our boys and girls, and that's very important. And I think it's time for lunch. What's obvious is that each philosophy comes with its own language, the language of leadership versus the language of lunch. And each language emphasizes different things. In the teacher's lounge after the assembly, I'm swamped by teachers who are angry about the testing and how heavily it's being emphasized and how high the stakes are now. If the two competing impulses in American education are accountability on the one hand versus nurturing on the other, the consensus of these teachers and all the teachers I talk to across the state is that obviously you need both. And even if the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of nurturing in the past, what George Bush and Al Gore are both proposing is to push it far in the other direction. What's needed is balance, the teachers say. But whichever man wins, that's probably not what we're going to see. Alex Bloomberg. Teacher's pets. I want to be teacher's pets. I want to be huddled and cuddled as close to you as I can get. Act three. So before we end our little election special, let's have a quick word about nepotism. In this country where supposedly anybody can grow up to be president, we have one candidate who was raised in Washington, D.C., son of a U.S. senator, the other guy, son of a president. And it's confusing to some of us, especially our contributor, Adam Davidson, who discovered recently that he and George Bush share six, that's right, six common ancestors, all of whom lived in 17th century England. Adam is wondering, how did this happen? Where did my side of the dynasty go wrong, and what did his side do so right? Why did he get the presidential nomination handed to him, and I have to borrow money from my girlfriend to pay the rent? I think it's probably true that George W. Bush is not all that bright. But he knows something. His whole family knows something. They know power. And they know how to get more and more power every generation. Well, uh, Adam, you and George Bush are both descended from Experience Mitchell and from a sister of Experience Mitchell was descended the late Prince of, uh, the late Princess of Wales. Presidential genealogist Gary Boyd Roberts. And so uh, you, Prince William, and George Bush Sr. and Jr. are all about uh, uh, ninth or tenth cousins of each other uh, through this one forebear. So this is a matter of one uh, set of six to eighth cousins becoming social registerite uh, American leaders and the others uh, remaining in small towns or small cities. And the the ugly term for it is, quote, quote, Swamp Yankee. This is Gary Boyd Roberts' favorite game. He loves linking people. 
for him, there are no distant cousins. Mention any New England name, and he'll link them right up to queens and kings, to the Mayflower, to you, to me, to himself. He's a great genealogist, and he told me we could find out exactly where the Bushes went right and where my family went wrong. It all goes back to 1783, when my folks had a better piece of land than George's. That's where things started going south. It seems that the Bushes were forced to move out of town that year to get better farmland, while my family stayed put. Well, they see these are people staying、uh, roughly. I mean, they may go five or six towns away, but they stay in the Plymouth area from 1620 until 1886. Right. You know that is、uh, 250 years. Staying in the same small town. Staying in the same spot. Right. And、uh, whereas the world was moving elsewhere. Meaning, economic development and serious cities and finance and education had long since moved out of Plymouth and just missed out on opportunities. Maybe that they didn't—that economic deprivation didn't force them to go anywhere. So they might have been just successful enough not to become incredibly just successful success- enough not 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 to feel they 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 wanted to move exactly. So let me recap this for you: the Bushes were our poor cousins. They weren't doing that well, so they decided to go somewhere else. The move started a tradition. Each successive generation went to wherever the next big thing was. First to Vermont for a better farm, then to Ohio for steel, Wall Street for finance, and eventually Texas for oil. And it only took a little bit of wealth to make everything a lot easier. You see, they use the prep schools, they use Yale, they use the whole summer connection to meet wives, which means a a kind of use of the social register world, and they instill senses of duty and sportsmanship and fair play, but they also introduce a, this, as you call it, sense of entitlement, which many people have 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 labeled smugness in the candidate or、uh, whatever.、Um, And they've now been in the forefront of American politics for about three generations. Each generation, starting in the 1800s, would make the family a little richer, a little more blue blood, and then would use their money and friends to create a network of political allies. And only once that network was in place do they run for office. All the Bushes do this. Prescott Bush got richer than his dad on Wall Street, then made friends, then went to the Senate. George Herbert Walker Bush got even richer in Texas, then made even more friends, then became president. George W. hopes he'll do the exact same thing. All the while, my family stayed, and each generation, the family land got smaller. Their only friends were other farmers. So when things finally got bad enough that they had to leave, about a hundred years ago, the only place to go was a blue-collar job in the city. By then, our family went from being the Bushes' superiors to being nothing but swamp Yankee trash, while our poor Bush cousins stopped having to work so hard. Now, what makes the Bushes interesting is that they have, like all dynastic families,、um, a mythology and a set of traditions and values that they pass on from one generation to the next. This is Adam Bello. He's writing a book about nepotism. His father is Saul Bello, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. And in the Bush family, it's considered important to、uh, to be or to appear to be a self-made man. The therefore, the younger Bush,、uh, George、uh, Senior, George Herbert Walker Bush, likes to tell the story that he,、uh, after graduating from Yale, got into his car with、uh, with his wife and his infant son, George Junior, 
and drove off to Texas to to get into the oil business. He doesn't mention that he used his father's connections to start an oil company. And the same thing is true, of course, of his son, uh, George Jr. and uh, Jeb Bush. Not that Adam Bellow thinks there's anything wrong with that. Nepotism is not good. It's not bad. It's how the world works. Only in America does anyone get upset about this anyway. Because ever since Benjamin Franklin filled his poor Richard's almanac with advice on how to be prosperous, there's been this idea that anyone can make it here with pluck and hard work. Franklin was a was a man of the middle class. A self-made man. <laughs> a self-made man. And interestingly, when he became postmaster general of the colonies in the 1730s, he gave all the jobs that he had under his control in all the 13 colonies to his relatives. Um, all the postmasters in all the colonies were nephews and cousins and relatives of Ben Franklin, and he moved them around at will. And when one of them died, uh, he would give the job to another relative. Um, and this is the great, you know, self-made man of American history. It sounds like what you're saying is there's not only do the wealthy know how to use it better and have more raw material with which to work, but they also are the only part of our society that doesn't have a stigma against it, or at least is very happy to overcome that stigma. And so I wonder if if it would be good for us to open up America to nepotism, to say here today, everybody use it, use it all you can, and um, and 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 let's make this a major tool in getting everybody uh, the best advantage they can. I mean, where I come down on this is that it's it's never going away. Um, um, studies of the labor market and it is how people get jobs indicate that most people get jobs, continue to get jobs through their relatives. It is just the way things are done. Adam Bellow has been studying nepotism for years, and he hasn't found any level of society anywhere in the world that doesn't use it. So how do you feel good about yourself when you're sitting there in that nice office that you didn't really earn? Well, for one thing, says Adam Bellow, you can have some humility about how you got the job, and you can work your ass off. You can work so hard that you earn the privilege that you lucked into. Take the two George Bushes. Elizabeth Mitchell, who wrote W, The Revenge of the Bush Dynasty, told me that they both say they are self-made men, and they're both obviously fooling themselves. Their families gave them tremendous head starts. When George Herbert Walker Bush, the father, the former president, moved to Odessa, Texas, and worked the lowest jobs at an oil company, painting rigs and handling supplies. The company he worked for was Dresser Industries. It was owned by his father's best friend and Yale roommate, Neil Mallon. In fact, Senator Prescott Bush gave the company to Mallon to run. George Sr. worked hard, and he ultimately started his own business. He was actually kind of brilliant. He was a pioneer in offshore drilling. When he became rich, richer than his dad, he earned it. Now take his son. When George W. drove to Midland, Texas, right after graduating from Yale, he went straight to his father's best friend, his father's former campaign manager, Jimmy Allison, who set him up in a low-level oil industry job. That went nowhere. Then he ran for Congress, lost, and then started a huge oil company himself. He didn't start at the bottom. He just called his uncle, Jonathan Bush, who quickly raised the money to create Arbusto. 
The primary funder was Philip Uzielli, James Baker's best friend and college roommate, a man who said he knew he probably wouldn't make any money but felt loyal to W's dad. Sure enough, Arbusta went belly up. George W. went on to get family friends to buy him two other oil companies that also went bankrupt. He didn't have any money, no successes to be proud of, and that is when his dad's pal, Bill DeWitt, invited him to become a co-owner and the CEO of the Texas Rangers. George W. had to borrow money to buy in because he was broke. People say he did do a good job with the Rangers. He got taxpayers to give $135 million for a new stadium, and he finally made himself and his dad's friends some money. In tracing the Bush family tree, I found that every single generation since 1780 has found new ways to make money and gain power. They were visionaries. They figured out what the next big thing would be, and then they took risks and reaped the rewards. And my family didn't. Bush's family has been working towards this Tuesday's election carefully and steadily for the last 220 years, while we Swamp Yankees have been watching it on TV. And at some level, it doesn't seem unfair. The only thing that bothers me is that they're sending in George W. to take the big prize. He hasn't been a visionary or a risk-taker. If he'd followed the family tradition, he'd have gone to Silicon Valley and started a dot-com. Instead, he entered the West Texas oil business when it was on its way out and was bailed out repeatedly by family and friends. And he could be our next president. Or we'll get the other guy, the son of the senator from Tennessee. Adam Davidson lives in Los Angeles. Well, our program was produced today by Alex Bloomberg and myself with Blue Chevney and Julie Snyder. Contributing editors Paul Toff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Consigliere Sarah Val. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman, Eric Hoverson, and the amazing Hillary Frank. Musical help from Mr. John Connors, also Marika Partridge and Terry Hecker. Special thanks today to Howard Machtinger, Joan Celestino, Greg Malhoyt, Susan Ohanian, Jessica Jones, Susan Konsky, and Daniel Ferry. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by Amazon.com. Many of the books and music heard on This American Life are available at Amazon.com. Amazon.com, helping you find your next favorite book, from history to health to science fiction. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Albert A. List Foundation, WBEZ Management by Tori Malatia, who believes, above all, in sharing. Here's your pen back. No, you can't have my pen back. Amira Glass, don't forget to vote. God bless you. God bless America. A great country. So let's shout it clear and loud. PRI Public Radio International.